0: However we act, and however we choose to act, determines the extent to which we thrive, individually, collectively, or as a planet. The world has never been changing more rapidly, dislocating the ways we work, learn, and live.
1: On the Learning Future podcast, We discuss the knowledge, skills, and dispositions we all need for our learning future, exploring insights with world-class educators, researchers, policymakers, and leaders from across industries and across the world. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Learning Future podcast. I'm your host, Luca Parry, and today, it's my delight to be speaking with Ross Hall. Ross is a strategist with a fixation on transforming education into thriving learning ecosystems. He is currently a co-lead of the Learning Society's portfolio with the Jacobs Foundation, and is based in Zurich, Switzerland in Europe. He's also co-founder of The Weaving Lab that is focused on advancing the leadership practices that are prerequisites to create and sustain learning ecosystems. There's a whole range of things we're gonna cover today. I'm very excited to have you on the podcast. Thank you, Ross.
0: Thanks very much for having me, Luca. So let's just start with something you've learned recently. Uh, that's a big question. I think I, I, um, I would. It's difficult to know where to start there. But I, and I wouldn't even say that I have learned this absolutely. But I am learning very rapidly about this challenge of applying evidence into the implementation of policies, or or in support of the implementation of policies, mm. which contribute to the creation of thriving learning ecosystems. So that's kind of connection between evidence, policy, and thriving learning ecosystems is a space that I'm currently embroiled in.
1: Oh, fantastic. Uh, I'm excited to unpick some of those threads with you. At the, let's start with the, one of the big ideas that you speak about through the different work and the roles that you play um, across a portfolio of different projects. Uh, you know why learning ecosystems and a thriving learning ecosystem you know where is it that we are now and what do you mean when you, when you use that kind of language
0: mm. well it's a, it's a deliberate use of language um, in a way to provoke people to see and think about existing education systems differently um, mm. you know there is that sort of very um, in a way overdone concept of we need to shift mindsets in order to shift systems, which I fundamentally believe in. And it seems to me that as a way of shifting mindsets, it feels like the use of language and narratives and shifting dialogue is really Mm. important. So this term learning ecosystem is used deliberately to invoke a much more organic sense of the system than most conceptions of the education system would contain. So when you ask people typically to talk about education systems, they'll start to talk about uh, policies, assessments, incentives, um, reporting lines, buildings, technology, Mm. all the stuff that seems to exist out there, somewhere out there. And I think in many people's minds, the system is somewhere out there. But the idea of the learning ecosystem hopefully brings to life something which is much less of a machine, an inert machine, which is that um, education system concept, something which is much more organic, something which is much more human, something which is much more about the relationships between people than it is about the mechanisms in the system. So the idea of the learning ecosystem is – very much about diverse actors working together and learning together um, adapting together and evolving together mm. in a very organic way to provide diverse range of learning experiences and environments for everybody in the system so that everybody in the system, has the best chance they can to develop a very wide range of knowledge, skills, attitudes, values, beliefs, perspectives, attitudes, ways of being in the world, things that are prerequisites uh, to thriving together. So the emphasis here is on the organic nature of the system, the mm. humanness of the mm. system, and on the diversity of people and experiences in the system. And that's essentially the idea behind the learning ecosystem.
1: I, I love, well, I love all language. <laughs> and I love the, you know, one, one of my favorite quotes by Norman Fairclough, you know, consciousness is the first step towards emancipation. And he founded critical discourse analysis, you know, it's a bit nerdy, but the idea of like, what what is the power that's woven into the words we use? And so of course, as human beings, um, at least since the cognitive revolution 70,000 years ago, you know, we've been using this language to, try to understand our world. And so I am really taken by even the way that you've described this. Um, and it's it's quite similarly the case, I think, you know, we have Santiago uh, Rincon Gallado, for example, we had here on this podcast, you know, a few months ago, the idea of moving from the grammar of schooling to the language of learning or something that he shared. Um, mm. And... You know, even Sir Ken talking about how do we think about, you know, the organic metaphor. He wasn't using the, word, the kind of learning ecosystem idea as far as I can recall. But this really fascinating way of thinking, yeah, how do, we, how do we get over the kind of cogs, whistles and levers that we all hear and, you know, I still use? You know, what's the lever that we pull? You know, the mechanistic conception of a human system, which is what education systems are, and move to the idea of the organic. And that means our language shifts You know, so as you've said, you know, evolution, adaptation, uh, you know, the idea of conditions and features of systems as opposed to a policy that's intersecting. Um, I'd love for you to expand a bit on this idea of evidence because one thing, um, you know, again, we've had Valerie Hannan on the same podcast and she speaks, you know, quite a lot about learning ecosystems also. How do we ensure that they're rigorous? Because there is, I think, a fear here, uh, and it's a valid one, that, this is all just fancy words. Like what actually changes, Ross, you know? If sure we can just relabel the brochure, like how do we move from kind of mental model into meaningful change? And how do you bring in as as you spoke about in your opening the evidence piece to this? How do we make this a rigorous learning ecosystem as opposed to one, you know, which might be a laissez-faire reflection um, or a fear that some educationalists and policymakers may have um, and parents, you know about the kind of emerging mainstream of progressive education
0: now it's a, it's a it's a good question if i may just or just add one small point to that idea of learning ecosystem the other dimension which is really important in that concept or the metaphor hmm. is it brings to mind the, the relevance of nature beyond the human species in uh, in, that, in in uh, learning Mm. and on the one hand it it emphasizes the role of learning in and with nature so actually being out in nature or bringing nature indoors and learning with nature so yeah. i think on the one hand it emphasizes a type of learning experience which i think is really important in many ecosystems and it also points to the function of the system as as a system which should be serving nature as well as humans, as well as individuals. So Mm. it's really emphasizing that idea of serving personal well-being, collective well-being and planetary well-being together. What you might think of as universal well-being or Mm. what I would usually call thriving. So again, just to emphasize that. um, In regard to that question about evidence, and what changes um, you know if you look at existing change programs there is often a lack of robust evidence as to what's actually working um, There, as a result of that there's often a lot of investment of time and uh, money and, and, and other energy mm. into trying to Implement things which may not work, uh, or that just don't have the evidence t- to show that they are working. And it seems to to me that um, although it's easy to get carried away with evidence and and it's very also very easy to ignore promising projects that don't yet have evidence, it seems to me that it's really important that we can point to evidence that says, yes, this is working, or no, this isn't working. Mm. In everything we do, yeah. whether that's shifting, um, whether, whether that's working with an individual student, so mm. to have evidence of what's working for the student, all the way back to the system of does a certain policy um, work in practice? Yeah. And then, and in between that, you've got all those other steps, which is around saying, well, how do you get a policy into practice? How does a mm-hmm. policy, which is how does that process of conceiving of a policy change? Yeah. All the way through those steps of getting that policy approved and then in, implementing that policy how does that ultimately shift the learning experience and the learning outcomes of people and mm. um, is often not evidenced yeah and that process is often broken and the thing that I'm currently working on is trying to figure out, well, how can, you, how can and should we apply evidence to those different phases in that cycle in order to optimize the chances that a policy change can actually result in a shift in learning outcomes?
1: Mm. That's great, Ross. I, I think what's really clear in your explanation there is that evidence-gathering is an ongoing process, you know. Often, I think there's this idea when people talk about evidence-based policy or evidence-based practice, that it therefore is based on something that's worked before. And I think what's interesting, if we kind of move into the world of wicked problems, which there are many <laughs> at the moment, and particularly in education, many of the challenges, of course, are not simple. It's not input-output program logic solved. You know, it's because it's because of the human factor. You know, like the beautiful you know, dynamism that exists in all the schools and every teacher and educator and parent would talk to. Um, so that idea of you know, evidence, the impact, monitoring, evaluation, the feedback loop being really tight in some ways. And I mean, I know that this speaks to some of your previous work, you know, Ashoka, for example, around you know, how do you be an impact-led entrepreneur or social entrepreneur, for example. Um, yeah, how do you solve social challenges? in a way where you're learning consistently. So, yeah, I what have, you, what have you noticed about the kind of keeping the distance between, you know, we're doing a three-year pilot, for example, of a policy, and then you get to the end and you say, well, it didn't work really that well. or It worked in some ways, but not others. How do we shorten that? How do we move to the prototyping kind of conception? Mm. Is that is that helpful to do
0: that? You know, what, what's your reflection here? I, I definitely think... We need to be doing this, and there's a whole debate in which I'm not an expert at all around the use of randomized controlled trials and whether we could actually implement new models of of testing which take much shorter cycles. Mm. Um, And by the way, I'm not uh, advocating nor objecting to the use of randomized controlled trials here because I think they have a place at certain times. But there is a challenge there. It, there's an ethical challenge, there's a mm. time challenge, there's a cost challenge, etc. So I definitely think we need to have uh, find uh, quicker and cheaper ways of gathering and synthesizing and then applying evidence in ways that allow for this kind of iterative approach to system change, instead of throwing everything into one huge project and hoping that it all works out at the end after three or 10 years, we have to be able to iterate. And there are clearly um, challenges uh, with this. There are procedural challenges, like how do you actually go about doing this? What are the processes that you could adopt in order to and generate and synthesize and apply evidence in an iterative manner but again there's also I think a bit of a mindset challenge here by the way there's also a funding challenge uh, yeah. which is which does add cost to projects and having worked with a lot of social entrepreneurs I know that can be really difficult having, having been a social entrepreneur or run a social entrepreneurial organization yes. that's a real challenge it's, you know, finding the funding to do this. Mm. So we'd have to address those challenges. But there is a mindset challenge. Mm. There's a mindset which seems to be that um, uh, there seems to be a, a bit of resistance to the idea of evidence in some quarters, I think. Um, in part, perhaps, because many of us invest not only our careers and our work, but we attach our identities to our work in many ways. Yeah, we get really connected emotionally, and the Mm -hmm. idea of um, proving that (laughs) our investment is not being worthwhile—in other words, you know, proving that in a way our identity is faulty—is a very painful idea for a lot of people. So we, I think, need to somehow make the idea of generating, translating, and applying evidence just more. Democratic, for want of a better word, more participatory, mm. more mm. something that everybody can understand and participate in. I think that's a really critical part of this puzzle.
1: Ah, oh, I, I love that. And I, that piece around identity in particular, Ross, is just, it's quite fascinating. Because as we walk into this ever faster evolving world in all the different directions, converging exponential technology, for example, shifting worlds of work, future of work, Um, you know, significant existential challenges, um, climate change, biodiversity loss, etc. You know, it does seem to me that all of us will need to reinvent ourselves many, many times over. Um, And actually, Heather McGowan, who was on this podcast, I think second episode, actually, um, spoke about the need to actually dissolve your identity to rebuild another. And so the idea of even being a teacher, and, you know, what's interesting about education, of course, is Theoretically, we all have the same amount of time, you know, and yet we know that some teachers actually add, are more impactful than others. So the question is, what are those practices and then how do I as a teacher? I mean, I think back to when I was in a classroom and in a school and, you know, I cringe, to be frank, about some of the practices. <laughs> um, you know, so the idea of really bringing in that evidence, but also holding space for adaption and innovation um, within that also. Um, do you want to respond to it's, that? Because I have another question about weaving, which I really want to go to after.
0: Yeah, I think there's an interesting connection between that use of time. We were talking just before, weren't we, about um, ta- the, this idea of time. Mm. And there's something about the connection between use of time and mindset, which is really critical here because you take. Um, two teachers or two parents or two policymakers in different parts of the world. And you can see how their relationship with time, might, their, their um, narrative about time um, seems to directly relate to how they spend their time. Mm. And you might have one teacher or one policymaker spending time in gathering, translating, applying evidence, and another choosing to not to do that for other reasons. So I think there's this really, um, which is why I'm always a little reluctant to just accept time limitations as a reason for not participating mm. in change projects. Yeah. While also recognizing that time is a, limit, is a limitation. It's a constraint. Yeah. It is a constraint, but it's not uh, in and of itself, I don't think it's a sufficient excuse. Yeah. You know,
1: it's, it's interesting, Russ, on this, you know, when we think about leadership, which is where I'd like to go, particularly around the prerequisites uh, in the practices and what does it mean to be a weaver in, in any case, you know? Um, but this idea on time, you know, to take full responsibility for your life means that you would never say you don't have time. What you'd say is it's not my priority. And it's much no. harder to live that life when people as a leader, you know, you're working with others and you know, someone might say, Oh, can I speak to you? And if you say, It's not my priority right now, people take I'm affronted by that. But really, this yes. is the idea we're talking about, you know, actually using one's agency to powerfully choose how you show up in the world, how you contribute to it, how you design, you know, your your lessons, how you show up as a parent, how you design the system or the company, whatever it is you might be leading or working in. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, And that's about, by the way, look at this, I think that then connects interestingly to this idea of policy and evidence again, the idea of agency policy and evidence. So, Mm. for some people, they will receive a policy instruction and they will blindly seek to implement that instruction or follow those instructions. And for other people, they're much more creative about how they um, interpret policy, which is why you get, under the same policy frameworks, you Mm. get really different schools and really different teaching practices. People choose to exert agency in interpreting policy, or they choose not to exert their agency and blindly follow uh, or, or interpret policies in another way, in a more narrow, um, directive way, I think. Mm. And I think the same with evidence, which is where I think evidence should enhance one's agency if used correctly. But I think for some people, there's a sense that If the evidence says something, then I need to be entirely directed and uh, my actions need to be determined by that evidence. And I don't think that's the invitation here. I think the invitation here is to use evidence to inform our agency Mm. as opposed to instruct our actions.
1: I like that a lot. Yeah, yeah. And (laughs) that we always have agency to choose, you know, we can get a bit... Viktor Frankl, you know, <laughs> logotherapy. there's always the space to choose our response and, and how often I think we just give away that agency in our own lives. Um, thank you for that, Ross. Tell, take us into the world of the weaving lab. I mean, I only first heard of the concept of weaving from the Aspen Institute, actually, which is the idea of, you know, these community change agents that would weave communities together. Um, but tell me about your conception of it as the co-founder of it and. What are some of the leadership practices that you think are prerequisites? And clearly, if we've ever ever had a moment for leadership, it's uh, it was yesterday. But of course, it's right
0: now as well. Uh, yeah, no, I fully agree. I mean, it's in a way just a, a a precursor is to say that this is an umbrella term for actually many leadership practices. I'll give. I'll I'll share right. some. But I think it's important to see it as an umbrella term, not as a a very hard and fast uh, single capability. (laughs) It's quite broad. Mm. The reason um, I'm absolutely convinced it's required in the creation of thriving learning ecosystems is that by definition, a thriving learning ecosystem is one in which diverse actors, So this is school teachers, school leaders, but also families, community leaders, culture makers, faith leaders, all sorts of people who have direct influence on young people Mm. are working and learning together to ensure people are learning to thrive together. And of course, then you've got in the second line, you've got the policymakers and teaching unions and teacher training institutions and auditors and administrators and media and funders and researchers and on and on goes the list. Yeah. People too need to be working and learning together with each other and with frontline actors. This is a learning ecosystem. It's highly connected where you've got feedback loops throughout the system in order to create those trusted relationships and feedback loops, which are prerequisites to a learning ecosystem that needs, you need to have people who are paying attention to the creation of those trusted relationships and feedback loops. They don't just come about uh, naturally, particularly mm. because the current system is one in which those feedback loops don't exist or are often broken. So you've typically got a very fragmented education system. And what we're saying is we need people to pay attention to the relationships, to weaving together mm. people, projects, and places. So that's why um, I fundamentally believe this is an essential um, set of practices uh, for, for the new world. Essentially, you can think of weaving in four dimensions. The first dimension, it's all about connecting people. It's about connecting people to a shared vision. So mm. the th- collective impact theory and practice shows very clearly that you need collective uh, or collaborative approaches re- rest on people sharing common Vision and uh, objectives. So that's it's about connecting people to shared vision mm. and connecting people to each other, and interestingly, connecting people to themselves within themselves. So there's an argument that people themselves are disconnected psychologically and physiologically. So there's a, it's an emphasis on that integration of self with others to a shared value. The second um, dimension is. To say that um, even if you have people aligned to a shared vision, they may not still work together. So you and I could be aligned to the same vision, but we might never talk to each other. We mm-hmm. certainly might not never share resources, etc. So the second dimension is about helping people collaborate and to collaborate for systemic impact. So this is wow. helping to share resources, share processes, share learnings, share opportunities in service of addressing systemic um, uh, challenges. So, getting to the root causes of challenges, not just superficially patching things up. The third dimension then is to say that we might be doing that, but we might not be getting better at doing that. Right. We might be collaborating really nicely on a project, but it might not be working. So the third dimension is about learning together. It's about adapting together, and it's about evolving intentionally together. Mm-hmm. So this is where the whole system starts to see itself as an ecosystem who are intentionally and explicitly evolving together to get better together as a system all the time. So that's the... Third dimension, mm. fourth dimension comes back to the first dimension in many ways, and it recognises that that process of learning together is rooted in a process of me learning myself, or recognising, in other words, that as someone who's weaving, I'm in the system. Mm. I'm an essential part of the system. The System is in me, even. And that to transform the system, I therefore need to transform myself. So this is about, in many ways, becoming a better system or learning to model a better system. So there's a very strong emphasis then amongst weavers often of having uh, practices which are about um, developing ourselves and often even embodying thriving or embodying universal well-being.
1: I I love the four dimensions and particularly that really powerful concept that often we, I think this takes us back to when we're talking about organic versus mechanistic metaphors for systems because in the mechanistic one, it's external to us always. It's a machine that we are not part of. And yet within the kind of learning ecosystem conception, we are by default the system itself itself. As a colleague of mine, Tony McKay, would say, you know, we are the people we have been waiting for (laughs) so often, you know, and no one is coming to save us. Uh, We must save ourselves. And that's an incredibly exciting opportunity and actually also a weight and a responsibility that we all have.
0: Um, By the way, it's it's a scary opportunity though, isn't it? I mean, this again comes by... Very much so, For a lot of people, this is a really scary prospect or it's just not really understood. It sounds a little bit far out or a bit new age for a lot of people. Yeah. And this is the challenges is we need to find bridging language to invite people into this way of seeing themselves in the system and recognizing that they are the system and that they need to become mm. the system. And of course, people like Otto Sharma and others are making brilliant strides at making this more accessible and you can start to feel there are more people undertaking meditative practices, et cetera. So it feels like the train is moving, Mm. uh, but we still have a lot of work to do to make it accessible, I think.
1: Yeah, that's that's a great point. I mean, the language piece does matter. I mean, I, I know Ashoka, I think, uses change makers, for example, as their language, you know, and the idea there is... Everyone is a leader, you know, and I love Jane Goodall's words on this, you know, we make an impact every day, we have to choose the impact we make. You know, we kind of just give that all away at some level um, because it is a responsibility to hold, as you say, it's very scary. Um, I'd love, I mean, the thing that I'm often buoyed by is seeing young people and their passion and their sense of collective responsibility as they often now take to the streets around different issues, as one way of of saying we are discontent with the direction that our world is taking. So, I mean, I think that's looking at agency, um, you know, quite obviously. Um, I'd love for you to take us into the future, Ross. Um, if this is done, if the if we if we all take responsibility and, and are able to kind of shift towards this idea of thriving learning ecosystems you know what does the world look like for schools universities and for companies and societies I suppose you know in in 15 years time from now when we've got the toddler that's graduating you know in the hopefully a mask-free graduation ceremony Um, what do you think what you know what is your what's your kind of foresight into that world
0: Yeah, it's it's more of a dream than a foresight. I think. <laughs> That's I mean, maybe I'm just feeling a bit pessimistic today. <laughs> but, but, um, but the, I mean, the starting point I think would be a world in which there's a much uh, a much expanded awareness of ourselves in and with everything else in the world. So. In other words, a a complete acceptance of our interdependence. Hmm. Um, And coupled with that, I think a much expanded awareness that in order that our thriving is our deepest purpose and highest aspiration. And that our thriving is dependent on how we are in the world, how we are being in the world, and therefore how we are becoming in the world. So that people have an explicit and intentional desire to develop themselves in many, many dimensions. Yeah. So that schools are not only focused on literacy numeracy and academic attainment, but are at least equally focused on this holistic development of the human being, um, including, by the way, adults. So not just mm. that's not just teaching, telling kids you need to do this, but actually modeling this kind of development so that you've got whole schools learning together to thrive together. And those schools are in very open communication and working together and learning together with others in the community. Um, so, you've got whole families engaged with schools, and businesses are engaged with schools, and everyone in the whole community. Mm. In other words, you've got this whole community developing whole human beings to live for the whole world. So, this kind of hyper holistic approach is what I would see. And I would dream of every neighborhood, every city, every district, every region. Being this kind of thriving learning ecosystem in which everyone is working together and learning together to learn to live for universal well-being together or to learn to thrive together. That's essentially what it'd be. And then all the the systemic mechanisms, the policies, the assessments are in support of this. Mm. So there's, there's this kind of a subjugation in some ways of the mechanisms of the system to the human aspirations that really drive the system.
1: It really feels like just putting the human first um,
0: and then backwards mapping from
1: there. <laughs> back so to first like, principles.
0: Yeah, and I would say it's probably not quite the human first. It's, na- it's almost nature first. Nature first. It's, first. it's mm. everything. It's life first. Life first.
1: That's, I like that, yeah. actually. Yeah, because yeah. human-centred design does exclude the rest of the living world, as we've, we can note is- in, in kind of yeah. the economic market-based economies that we see. Um, Ross, it's been such a pleasure. I'd love for you to leave us with a take-home message from the pretty significant ground that we've covered. You know, what what do you want to leave our listeners with?
0: Or oh, no pressure at all to... No to, pressure whatsoever. need to take out something profound. Well, I... um <laughs> And Let me borrow somebody else's profound words then if, if I think course. might be the best thing to do. Because uh, you've, you've been good at quoting people. And I'm, I have literally, I know one quote, so I'm going to use this one. <laughs> but um, it's, it is actually my favorite quote. And it's uh, Alan Watts said, we are this universe and we are creating it at every moment. And I think that's just beautifully encapsulates this idea of us in the world, and it brings to life for me the sheer interdependence of everything and the fact that we are, whatever whatever we choose, however we act and however we choose to act, determines the extent to which we thrive, individually, collectively, or as a planet. And it feels to me as though that is the centerpiece of this idea of the learning ecosystem. It's mm. to bring the conception into real change in real people's lives, not just conceptually, but in real people's lives. And I think that is within the reach of all of us because it mm. starts with our own decisions at every moment and everybody can therefore make very small, but very profound contributions to this vision.
1: Ah, uh, wow, Russ, it's like a call to action, but also a deeper call for who we want to be in the world, uh, And so thank you for joining us for the Learning Future podcast and for showing up the way you do
0: in the work that you do. Thanks so much, Luca. It's been a great pleasure.
1: Thanks for listening to the Learning Future podcast. To find out more about our work, drop into thelearningfuture.com and follow us at Learning Future on LinkedIn, Twitter and
0: Instagram. Here's to building a world of thriving learners together.